middle schoolers, you are now free to go with your leaders uh, upstairs. Uh, can you imagine as you sing those words and maybe you close your eyes as we sing them, can you imagine what that day is going to be like when we're surrounded by the heroes of the faith? being able to look over and to sing the same songs of praise to our God forever uh, with the Apostle Peter and Moses and Abraham and, 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 and grandparents and uh, loved ones who have beat us to heaven. And can you imagine what it's going to be like to sing with a thousand generations to a God who is worthy of our praise? If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open them up to Micah. Um, if you don't know where Micah is, there's this page in the front of your Bible called a Table of Contents. Micah is a little bit obscure. It's called a minor prophet, not because it's not important, but because it's not very long. Uh, it's, it's sort of tucked in the, the end pages of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at it this week, or the, this week and in the coming weeks. And uh, I just pray that this is both challenging uh, and encouraging to you. Um, it's, it's a prophet poet. So we got prophecy and we have poetry. And if you're anything like me in high school, when you came up to the poetry section, you just sort of cashed it in uh, because uh, you would read something and the teacher would say, well, Tony, what do you think that means? And whatever you shared was wrong. Um, so I pray that as we slow down and go through Micah, that we're able to think both in prophet terms and poetry to get the, a rich, deep meaning out of this book. And so I pray that, that, that if you miss a week in the next several weeks, uh, that you catch up to the, with the sermon, that use the one sheet because it's going to be very beneficial to taking us a little bit further than we can go in just a few minutes together uh, this morning. But I, I have been th uh, praying and studying about this series for several months, and I am glad that it is finally here uh, because it has challenged me, and I pray that it challenges you as well. Before we begin this message, before we begin this series, let's pause one more time. Just ask God to in, in infect our hearts and invade our hearts uh, so that we can have a deeper understanding. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the verses that just come to mind right off the bat when we, when we need just wisdom from you. And God, we are thankful for the more obscure parts of Scripture. And God, in the next few weeks, I just pray that you would allow us to mine this minor prophet for all it is worth. God, I pray that you would give us a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation of you and who you are and how much you love us, and a deeper commitment to chase after you with everything that we have. God, just open our heads and open our hearts for a deeper understanding, a biblical understanding of who you are and how we should interact with you and your world. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. On Wednesday, June the 16th, a few years ago in 1858, Abraham Lincoln stood before the Illinois Republican Convention. And just the day before, the convention had done something uh, very strange, very different for them. They named this conservative man as their candidate for Senate. So as he stood before the Illinois Republican Convention on this day, his words were aimed at one specific person in particular, and also all those who would support this man, and that was Frederick, or Stephen Douglas. And he said these words, and we may remember some of them from our history lessons, but he spoke these words. He said, Mr. President and gentlemen of the convention, 
If we could first know where we are and where we are tending, we could better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now in the, to the fifth year since the policy was initiated, which avowed with the avowed object and a confident promise of putting an end to slavery. Under that operation, under the operation of that policy, this agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until the crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave, half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Lincoln was very prophetic in his words about the union being divided over many things, all of which began and ended with this, the idea of slavery and the institution of slavery. He knew that his house, his country, the union would be divided if something drastic did not happen. Prophetic words spoken by this, at this time, soon-to-be president Prophetic, yes, but borrowed, because those words, a house divided against itself will not stand, were not his words originally, but he was quoting from Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, when Jesus stood before a group of people, including a bunch of Pharisees who had just witnessed him heal a man who was not only demon-possessed, but also deaf and blind. And he was saying this into that context because they had just witnessed this amazing miracle, and yet they were divided and they were fighting about what they had witnessed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. There's, one, there's several th themes or sort of one-liners that I want us to keep in front of us in the coming weeks. And the first of those is, pours out of that phrase from Jesus that Lincoln borrowed and that's that division leads to destruction. This has been a truth that has been true since the beginning of time. You can go back to the Garden of Eden and see how Satan caused division that led to the destruction of what God had originally wanted for his creation. Perfection in the Garden of Eden. Perfection on earth. You can go just a little bit further uh, when we see division caused by jealousy in Cain and Abel that led to the destruction of Abel and Cain being marked, being cast out. We can go a little bit further and we come to Abraham who took matters into his own hands and caused division when he had a son with someone other than his wife and that son's name was Ishmael. I encourage you strongly to pick up, to, to print off the one sheet this week and to look at just the impact that that division has made in history, in world history since then. Because Ishmael, from, from Ishmael, stems a religion vibrant today of Islam. Division leads to destruction. You can go to Jacob and Esau, and you can see those two brothers warring and how division created destruction in that family. And then, you know, not, maybe not as 
as violent and as long-lasting as Ishmael, but Esau was also known as Edom, and that became a people group known as the Edomites. And we see the Israelites and the Edomites battling each other, page after page after page in Scripture. Division leads to destruction. You can even flip over into the New Testament and see how division threatened even those closest to Jesus. How, if you remember... James and John, those sons of thunder, the mom came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, when, when this is over and we are in heaven, when James and John are with you in heaven, can you do me a favor? Can you ensure that they will have special seats in your kingdom? And, of course, the other apostles heard this, and it threatened the unity of that group. Jesus said, hey, one of you guys are going to betray me. And Peter stands up and says, hey, listen, Jesus, everybody else may leave. I'm going to stick with you to the end. We see just a few pages later in the New Testament that not only did he deny Jesus once, but three times. Division. We can see Judas, who was in charge of the money of the apostles as they traveled around. The the division caused by greed and money led to his destruction. Division leads to destruction. We see it all throughout history, but maybe never as clearly as we see it in the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Now, those two names may not be as familiar to you as Cain and Abel or Abraham and Isaac, but you'll know who came before them. So let's back up just a little bit so that you know who Jeroboam and Rehoboam are and the division that it caused in God's people. Israel wanted a king. So uh, so around 1052 B.C., God gave them a king, and his name was Saul. And Saul did some good things. Saul did some bad things. And then after him came David and then his son Solomon. And during the reigns of David and Solomon, that was the golden years of Israel in the United Kingdom, in the unified kingdom. They did some good things, but they were men, so they did some bad things also. But that was the high point of the nation of Israel, unified together, 12 tribes that came together as one nation. But after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam, made a bad decision. Because people came to them and said, hey, listen, Rehoboam, if you really want to get off on the right foot with, with, your, with your subjects, with your kingdom, you, here's what you could do. You could ease off of some of the taxes that your father placed on the kingdom and the citizens of the kingdom. So Rehoboam sought some input. He sought some counsel. Unfortunately, George, from the wrong type of people, because they gave him different advice. And Rehoboam came back and said, hey, Dad charged charged you with taxes at this level. I'm going to raise it to this level. And there was a rebellion. There was a revolt led by Jeroboam. And there was a division in the kingdom. Ten of the tribes were loyal to Jeroboam, and they made up the northern kingdom of Israel, still referred to as Israel. Two tribes remained faithful to Rehoboam, and they become the southern kingdom. And we refer to it, as you read through the Old Testament, as as Judah. And over the course of the next several centuries, many centuries, we see the history played out uh, in these two different kingdoms. You think it's confusing reading through first and second kings, first and second chronicles? It's because sometimes we're talking about northern kingdom, sometimes we're talking about southern kingdom, sometimes we're talking about both. 
But because of the decision of Rehoboam, the division that he caused, it ultimately led to the destruction of the nation of Israel. Throughout, throughout the, the, the history of the northern kingdom, there were some kings, a lot of kings, almost all of them evil. A few good ones, sort of good ones, mixed in. But there were at least nine coups and assassinations and dynasty changes during that time, and eventually that northern kingdom was invaded, defeated, and carried off into captivity by the mighty Assyrian nation. That northern tribe never returned. Off the face of the earth, never returned. Division leads to destruction. Now, the the southern kingdom of of Judah had a little bit more favorable history. Um, they, they survived for a while, and they had a mixture of good kings and bad kings, all of them in the line of David. But it is in this story where Judah, or where Micah speaks mainly. He speaks a little bit to, about and to the northern kingdom, but in the middle of his um, ministry, that kingdom, that nation ceases to exist. It's taken off by Assyria never to return. Most of his prophesying, most of his words are to the southern kingdom. And he, he, we see in Micah chapter 1 some of the context of when, when specifically Micah ministered. We're going to look at context every single week so that we can understand more fully what's going on here and how to apply it to our lives. But for right now, in Micah chapter 1, verse 1, it gives us uh, some context when it says that in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, it's probably not probable that, that Micah started on the same year as, as um, Jotham and ended up with Hezekiah. So he probably doesn't span that entire three reigns, but he ministered during the reigns of these three kings. And in that middle time, in that, the, the reign of Ahaz, that is when the sister tribes, the original, the ten of the original twelve in the north were carted off into captivity. And then Hezekiah, after Hezekiah, less than a hundred years after Hezekiah's reign ends, the southern kingdom is besieged and carted off again, by this time by the Babylonians. Now, if you want to read something interesting, we don't have the time to investigate that now, but go back and read. Because once upon a time, not too far before this, the Babylonians were just this afterthought of a nation, not powerful at all. And they came in to visit Judah, and the king of Judah just sort of showed them around. You want to see the, you want to see the, the castle? I'll show you the castle. You want to see the temple? I'll show you the temple. You want to know our secrets? I'll show you our secrets. And then just a little bit later, here come the Babylonians, much bigger, now with all the secrets on how to lay siege to Jerusalem and destroy God's people. Here is where Micah is prophesying. Here is where he is as a prophet who takes the word of God and shares it with the people of God. Here is where he is prophesying, where he is ministering. Today, we are going to take a 10,000-foot view on a supersonic jet at what is going on in Micah. Over the next few weeks, we're going to slow down, take more of a drive through the country as we see in more detail what is going on. 
But two things as we move forward. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And division leads to destruction. Keep those two things in your mind as we move forward. Again, Micah, if you read it, you see that most of it is written in poetry and prose. Makes it a little bit tougher for us to understand. But here's the thing. Poetry is always meant to evoke emotion and imagination. So as you read through this book, and I encourage you to read through it several times. It's only seven chapters. Um, so it's not going to take you a lot of time to read through uh, the six chapters. I'm sorry. No, there's seven. Uh, only, it doesn't take you a lot of time. But let me encourage you to do something. If you read out of the ESV, read out of the ESV for a week. Then flip over and read out of the, the NIV. Flip over and read out of the New Living Translation. All because we want to understand this as best we can. And let your imagination run wild. That's why it's written this way. It's also written uh, as prophecy. So we don't just look at it and say, ooh, that's going to happen. We can't just take it out and apply it to me right off the bat because there's some, some different ways that prophecy is to be interpreted, and we will get to that. But right now, let's just get to this point. And all I'm going to say is at this point in history, God's anger, God's wrath has reached a boiling point. He, he has been patient. He has been slow to anger. He has been loving. He has been corrective. But in this point in history, God's wrath is up here. Keep that in mind as we read these opening verses of Micah chapter 1. Let's start in verse 2, where the poetry starts. He says, listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth, and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? We'll get to what this means here in a few weeks. And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be, turned, will be burned in the fire. And I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. Now, we may not understand all the words and all the meaning in those, in those seven verses, but you can tell that God is ticked off. When he's talking about mountains melting, about rolling the rocks into the, in, into, the, into the valley, about being a heap of ruins, God is not happy with his people. Judgment is coming. Now, when I say that we're going to, that we're going to study Micah, some of us hear those words, and they come to a section of Scripture of verses like this, and they say, yeah, 
Sin needs punished. Evil needs punished. Bring the punishment, right? Bring the hurt. Bring, Bring judgment on these people. Punish the sinners. When what we really mean is God punish the sinners that sin differently than me. If that's you, if you like know a little bit about Micah and you're happy about this, this series coming and because it's, bringing, it's going to bring judgment, i got to tell you something. Over the next several weeks, you're going to be offended and you're going to be disappointed. And I pray and I hope that Micah changes you. Now, some of us hear that we're going to study Micah, and we come to maybe the most well-known verse in Micah. Uh, if you flip over to Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, we, we have this, this, this famous, common, commonly known verse that says, Mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Some of us, when we hear that we're going to study Micah, come to a verse like this and say, yes. Let's talk about this. It's about time that the church tackled something like social justice. And you say, yes, let's talk about this. But we ignore, we take one part of that verse and we ignore the rest of it. We, 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 take, we take a verse that says, God says to act justly or to do justice, some of your translations might say. But we ignore how we are to do this by loving, being faithful, and walking humbly with our God. As we will see, any attempt at justice not tied to the life and death of Jesus Christ is merely an attempt to stop a mortal wound with a Band-Aid. And if you are coming into this study thinking, yes, finally, we're going to talk about social justice, I'm going to tell you something. Over the next several weeks, you're going to be offended. You're going to be disappointed. And I hope that Micah changes you. Now, make sure you're paying attention to me and make sure you're hearing me here. Should we seek justice? Absolutely. Yes. As my grandpa used to say, twice on Sundays. But we need to seek biblical justice. And I hope that we see that it is something much more complete because it is something that is eternal. And if we divide justice from Jesus, we're only leading people toward eternal destruction. Justice void of Christ will ultimately fail those it seeks to serve. In Micah, we're going to see that judgment is coming and it is fueled by God's wrath. God's judgment is coming, and it is fueled by his wrath against evil. And without Jesus, we are going to get exactly what we deserve, eternity in hell. And there's nothing that we can do about it. Mark Dever, who is the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., also does some work with nine marks. He said this, he says, sin has consequences. And the most fundamental consequence of sin is the alienation it causes between humans and God. It separates us from him. But we construct this worldview uh, and this view of God that, that works for our benefit and fills our desires. 
You guys know Eugene Peterson probably most uh, by his work on the message and the, the, the author of that, that paraphrase version of the Bible. But he's, he's, a, he's a gifted mind, and he's written a lot of amazing books. And he said this about us, left to ourselves. We turn God into an object, something we can deal with, something we can use to our benefit, whether that thing is a feeling or an idea or an image. Prophets scorn all such stuff, and they train us to respond to God's presence and His voice. Sin has consequences. Relationships are destroyed. Division leads to destruction. Without Jesus, we're destined for hell. That is why we study Micah. Our attempts to heal the world void of Jesus are futile. The wrath of God is coming for us, and there's nothing we can do. It's coming for sinners like me, sinners like you, and judgment should mean eternity in hell. Regardless of how just we think we are, regardless of how good we think we are, and how bad we might think we are. But thank God we come to a scripture like Micah chapter 2 and verse 12. Thank God this is in here. Again, through that idea of poetry and prophecy, listen to these words in Micah chapter 2, 12 and 13. It's like, it's like he inserted a big but in here. And he said, I will gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its fold. It will be noisy with people. And one who breaks open the way will advance before them. They, break, they will break out, pass through the gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. Now, again, we may not understand all the nuances of that, but somebody's coming, somebody rescues, and that should bring us some joy. But look what happens. God says, I am going to gather my people. I'm going to collect a remnant. Where? In some type of captivity. And this pen, this flock in the middle of its fold is going to be, I'm going to collect you. And then this person from the outside is going to break in to that sheepfold. He's going to crash through the gap and he's going to lead that noisy flock of sheep out to freedom. That, my friends, is a picture of the New Testament gospel. How God leaves heaven in the form of Jesus Christ and crashes in to our world and leads us out to freedom. The Lord as their leader. The Lord is our leader. Thank God Micah 2, 12, and 13 is in there because that gives us hope against God's wrath. Jesus comes as this warrior, shepherd, king to save us. He, he, he busts in and where we are in captivity and he breaks open the way. And he, not us, he leads us to freedom. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a warrior, shepherd, king? 
That's what Micah 12, Micah 2.12 is telling us he is. See, Israel in Micah has sinned against God. In 2022, we sit here having sinned against God, and our sin cannot go unpunished. But this shepherd warrior king comes crashing in. He breaks into our captivity and delivers us by taking on the wrath of our sin and leads us to salvation, to freedom. See, God is just. And as a just God, he has to give us what we deserve. That is hell. But God's mercy is more. And he shows that mercy by sending his son to be the sacrifice for us, to lead us out. God is just, but his mercy is more. His mercy is more powerful than your sin. You may think it is not, but it is. God's mercy is more powerful than any division that you can perpetrate. God's mercy is greater than any past that you cannot escape, than any present that you can't overpower, than any shame that beats you down, than any guilt that shackles you, any insecurities that keep you from living the life he has in store for you. But, Micah says, something's got to happen. Uh, Micah 6, 8, or my, I'm sorry, Micah 6, 6 is this neat picture of someone standing before God. And he's like, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 6, he says, And what should I bring? What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? And would, it please, would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or even 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body, for my own sin? All these things. He's like, what's it going to take for God not to be mad at me anymore? Can I just give more and more stuff? Here, even take my kid. But look what he says. Mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Humility before God is marked by confession that we can't save ourselves. Our lives are nothing but proof that we can't do anything to better our relationship with God. Humility before God is marked by repentance, repentance of our stubbornness and our need to surrender to God's care. Division always leads to judgment and destruction. But for those of us who repent, for those who surrender to the shepherd king, Micah 2, 12 and 13 tells us that Jesus is breaking through to lead us to salvation. And there, church, there is your definition of biblical justice. It's deliverance now and it's deliverance in eternity. It's real now, and it doesn't end at some point in the future. It continues for all time and beyond. And here is something that I want us just to hold on to as we move through this series. It's true of me, and it's true, and I hope, and it has to be true of me, and it has to be true of us. And that is, on my part, that the message of the text must be the message of the sermon. Every time that I get up here, Scott gets up here, 
Angie Yoho gets up here. Carrie Jean, Brandon Stahl, Mike Miller get up in this place and stand before you. The message of the text must be, must be the message of the sermon. Otherwise, you're just getting somebody's opinion. The message of the text must be the message of the sermon. And the message of the text must be the message of our lives. Not party alliances, not social placebos, not cultural norms. The Word of God must be the message lived out by the lives that those that confess Jesus as their Savior. The message of our lives must mirror the life of that warrior shepherd who broke through the gap to save us and to lead us to freedom. He gave all for us. We must give all for him. He gave all for us. We must give all of ourselves for him. There are only two options when, where we will spend eternity after our life on this planet is over, heaven and hell. Without reality, we should be compelled to share the news of this shepherd king, this shepherd warrior king with anybody and all that we can. Sometimes we lose sight of that reality. Sometimes we forget all that Jesus did for us, and we need reminded often. That's one of the reasons God gave us communion as a reminder. So if you've accepted Jesus, you are in him, and if you're in him, this meal is for you, to remind you of all that has been accomplished for you by Jesus, our Savior, all that he endured for you. So if you're in Christ this morning, take this little wafer and, and just hold it in your hands. Feel it. This is the body of Christ, broken and destroyed for you. As he said to his apostles on the night that he was to be betrayed, do this, eat this in remembrance of me. And as you peel the foil off of that small cup, peer at it and look at this small sip of grape juice of varying degrees of you should drink this or not, but this represents the blood of our Savior that was poured out for us, that was spilled gruesomely yet freely for us. And he said those same words to his apostles, do this in remembrance of me.